Today begins a brand new series that will take us to the second week of August, a series we've entitled Unite, 40 Days of Life-Changing Prayer. And we'll begin this morning by looking in the letter to the Romans in chapter 13. That's Romans chapter 13. And I truly believe that this series could be the most important sermon series that our church has ever gone through. And I believe it could be the most important and significant sermon series in your life. And I don't believe I'm overstating that. I don't believe I'm exaggerating. I pray that it is. My goal for this series is very simple. It is to get you as an individual to pray, to get you as a family to pray and to get us as a church to pray together. Because all I know is this, when God's people pray, God moves in power. There are some things that God does apart from prayer, but there are other things that God will only do when his people pray. And so I want to call us as a church, as a body of believers to pray together. That's why we're entering into this series. That's why we've written the Sunday school lessons. That's why we've provided you with devotional books because we want to give you every means necessary, every opportunity available to pray and to pray together. If we pray, God will do amazing things. The results are up to God, but I'll tell you this, he won't disappoint us. Now, let me explain to you, we've written a devotional book. It's with the same title, Unite, 40 Days of Life-Changing Prayer, that lasts over this entire series. We've had Pastor Matthew Gibbs write Sunday school lessons that you heard this morning in Sunday school to begin this series. And so I want to encourage you, if you don't yet have a book, we'll make more available, but go to the website and click on that PDF, and you can look at it each day, or you can save it to your computer, or you can print it off yourself, and walk through this journey with us, not just on Sundays, but each day of the week. In fact, tonight begins our first time of family devotion as we talk about what it means to be a family around, centered around prayer and as a family to pray for our country. And then we have family devotions that last each week on Sunday evenings and then an individual devotion each day of the week that other pastors on staff have written for us to walk through. And so I want to encourage you to not just come for Sunday, but to be a part of this series as we as we go through it. Now, before we begin this morning and talk about what the Bible has to say to us in Romans 13, I want to give you some general thoughts about prayer, some general principles on prayer. The first one is this. Prayer is the breath of the Christian life. Prayer is the breath of the Christian life. Now, I want to, I want to see if I can illustrate this to you for just a moment this morning. So stop what you're doing right now and just hold your breath. Hold your breath. All right? Maybe you took a deep breath before I asked you to hold your breath. But if I were to ask you to hold your breath and if I were to keep talking, in fact, just go upon, just go about my sermon this morning and keep going. If, if I were to ask you to hold your breath the entire time, some of you'd be passed out and it wouldn't be because you're tired or I was boring. You can stop now if you want to breathe again. Everybody takes a big breath, a deep sigh of relief. 
You see, we don't think about breathing, do we? We just do it automatically. But if you were to stop breathing, you begin to think about it. It becomes a priority. And I would say this, that prayer is the breath of the Christian life. It gives you strength. It gives you sustenance. It sustains you and supports you. Without prayer in your Christian life, you have no effort, you have no energy, you have no vitality, you have no strength, and you have no usefulness for Christ. Prayer is the breath of the Christian life. Number two, prayer is the power cord that connects you to the ultimate power source. Prayer is the power cord that connects you to the ultimate power source. We could have all kinds of gadgets and gizmos, all kinds of wonderful new, the latest, greatest technology, but if it's not plugged in, if it's not powered, it's not going to work, right? We can have the latest, greatest when it comes to church and ministry and choir and orchestra and preaching and Sunday school and all of those things, but if we're not plugged into the power source through prayer... It'll all be for nothing. It will be useless. Prayer is that power cord that connects you to the ultimate power source that is God. Let me give you a formula. No prayer equals no power. Much prayer equals much power. Number three, if we really prayed as much as we talk about prayer, we'd be experiencing revival already. If we really prayed as much as we talk about prayer, we would be experiencing revival already. Can I tell you the truth? This sermon series is worthless if it doesn't lead us to pray. This sermon series is worthless if it doesn't call us to our knees. Those devotion books will mean nothing if they don't lead you to a greater depth in your personal prayer life and in our prayer life as a body of believers. Prayer, you have to do more than just talk about it. You have to do more than just learn about it. You have to do more than just study it. You have to do it. If we prayed as much as we talked about it, we'd be experiencing revival already. Number four, prayer is a dialogue, not a monologue. Take time to let God speak to you. Number four, prayer is a dialogue, not a monologue. Take time to let God speak to you. If you spend the whole time talking and never listen, you will not learn anything when you pray. You need to make sure that in your prayer life, you it's like breathing. You breathe out and breathe in. You breathe out prayers to God and let God speak to you through his Holy Spirit. Listen to what God would have to say to you in your times of prayer. Number five, prayer should be our steering wheel, not our spare tire. I believe it was Corey Tim Boom who said, we treat prayer more like a spare tire than we do a steering wheel. Prayer should be our steering wheel, not our spare tire. And how often have you encountered an emergency in your life or run into a valley or a difficulty and the first thing that you do is you begin to pray. But how long was it before then that you prayed? Prayer shouldn't just be our 911 call to Jesus. It should be a consistent aspect of our devotional life each and every day. Do you pray only when you face problems and encounter difficulties? Or do you pray each and every day for guidance, for direction? So today we begin our series on prayer. And we're talking about praying for our nation. This week we observe Independence Day, July 4th. And we'll talk this morning about the subject, One Nation Under God. 
One nation under God. We'll look at Romans chapter 13 and verses 1 to 14. I believe it was Ronald Reagan who said, if we ever forget that we are one nation under God, we will be a nation gone under. Believe it or not, despite the events of this past week and really the events of several decades in America, our nation's motto still is, in God we trust. I'm thankful that it is, but I'm wondering how true that statement is these days. Do we really trust in God? Are we still one nation under God? And what do we as believers in Jesus Christ, what responsibilities do we have when it comes to believing and trusting in God and obeying our government? Well, the Bible speaks to this very clearly, and it's no accident that today I've had planned to preach this message this Sunday for over a year. And it's no accident that God has us in Romans chapter 13 as we talk about what it means to submit to, follow, and obey our governing authorities. Begin reading with me, Romans chapter 13 and verse 1, we'll read the entire chapter to verse 14. Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinances of God, and those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Do what is good, and you will, and you will have praise the same. For he is God's minister to you for good. But if you do evil, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is God's minister and avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. Paul is telling us that we ought to obey our governing authorities because they have the right to punish us if we don't obey the law. Verse 5. Therefore, you must be subject not only because of wrath, not only because of punishment, but for conscience's sake. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For they are God's ministers attending continually to this very thing. Who knew that God's word dealt with April 15th and the IRS? Render therefore to all their due, taxes to whom taxes are due, custom to whom customs, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. Owe no one anything except to love one another. For he who loves has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, you shall not covet. And if there's any other commandment, they're all summed up in this saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor, therefore love is fulfillment of the law. Paul says all of these laws and things, if we just love one another, you'd be amazed how to take care of everything. Verse 11, and do this, knowing the time. That now it is high time to awake out of sleep. For now, our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. The night is far spent. The day is at hand. Therefore, let us cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the day, not in revelry and drunkenness, not in lewdness and lust, not in strife and envy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. Remember this morning, the power is in the word of God. 
And here in this text, we see several principles about what it means to be under the authority of a governing rule. What does it mean for a Christian to obey God and to honor their governing authorities? Number one, the first thing we notice is that we ought to pray for our God-given authority. So pray for your God-given authority. Now, it seems interesting with the events of this past week, as a Christian in our country, we have to begin to ask the question, where in the world are we headed and how far will we really go? Where are we headed as a nation and how far will we go? It is clear that we are headed in the opposite direction of God's word, his standard, and his truth. So the question isn't which direction are we going, but how far will we go down that path? And somebody said this week, the events of this week are not the things that will bring about the judgment of God. Indeed, they are the judgment of God. But in light of that, how do we respond? How are Christians supposed to respond in days like this? Well, I would submit to you that we respond the same way Paul instructed the Romans to respond. Look at what he says again in verses 1 and 2. Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinances of God, and those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. Now, this is a powerful word for our day and for our time and for this very moment in our nation's history. And I'll be honest with you, this is not a text I felt like reading or preaching this week. I didn't feel like standing up and saying, listen, God's got it under control. We ought to respect and pray for our authorities. We ought to recognize that they are there, appointed by God. I don't feel like saying that. But it's true. Now think about it. Paul is writing to Roman believers. They have not yet experienced the great persecution, but it is coming. There's coming a day, and Paul is writing to a group of people who will have to stand one day and either pay homage to Caesar, saying Caesar is Lord, and live. Or they'll stand and say Jesus Christ is Lord and they will die. Paul is writing to a group of people who understand what it means to live in the midst of persecution for being a follower of Christ. Persecution had come, but greater persecution was coming. And Paul is saying, in the midst of that, in that context, trust God in uncertain times and pray for the authority that he's placed in your life. And as far as you can, obey them as long as it doesn't contradict the word of God. That's a hard word for us today. This whole issue is about respect and honor. We don't have to agree with them. We don't have to think that every decision they make is right. But that ought to lead us to pray for them all the more. You do realize that God's idea Government is God's idea, not man's. You do realize that God is the one who instituted government, not George Washington. 
It wasn't the United States of America that all of a sudden invented this concept. God is the author of the institution of government. He's written the book on government. He has a plan for government. But it seems as if societies that are based upon the word of God continue to free fall, decline morally. But what is our response as Christians? This is this is important. The whole issue is of respect and honor. We ought to pray for them. We ought to lift them up to the Lord. The Bible tells us in Proverbs chapter 21 and verse 1, even the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. Like rivers of water, he turns it where he wishes. Do you believe that God can turn the heart of the president? Do you believe that God can turn the hearts of Congress? Do you believe that God can turn the hearts of the Supreme Court of the United States? Do you believe that? The Bible says it's true. So we must pray. So how should we respond when the Supreme Court paves the way virtually for same-sex marriage to be legalized across our land? How should we respond? When they completely deny a state that has already democratically voted to protect marriage, a Congress that has instituted the Defense of Marriage Act, and it's in one fell swoop basically gone. While they stopped short this week of legalizing same-sex marriage, they have paved the way for any citizen in any state to bring a Supreme Court challenge that then they'll offer a sweeping decision for same-sex marriage to be legalized in any state across our union. How do we respond? Well, first and foremost, we as believers in Jesus Christ ought to pray. We ought to pray for the Supreme Court. We ought to pray for the mercy of God. We ought to pray for our leaders. And we must remember that while they are the Supreme Court of the United States, they are not the Supreme Court of the universe. And there is only one judge who is perfect and just and righteous and true. And the Supreme Court, the justices one day, will stand before Almighty God, just as you will and just as I will, that God is the one who is the judge in the end. And as believers in Jesus Christ, we must remember this as well. One day, God will right all wrongs. One day, He will make all things new. One day, He will set all things straight. And we long, we long for that day. But between now and then, We must remember that the only thing that will change the trajectory of our nation is the gospel of Jesus Christ. The only thing that will save us from impending doom is the word of God and the hope we have in Jesus Christ. There is no political election that will bring revival to our nation. There is no political party that will bring us back to the feet of Jesus There's no political strategy that will bring about God's favor and his hand upon our nation. We must pray and we must proclaim the news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This world needs Jesus. And so what do we do? We must remember that we still live in a sin-cursed, sick, and fallen world. We must remember that this world is not our home. 
And however comfortable we have felt as Christians in the United States, that comfort will continue to diminish. But allow that discomfort to remind you that this world is not your home. You are a stranger. You are a pilgrim. You are in a foreign land. And you are just passing through till one day we will dwell in a home where all things are right. And so the events of this week do not discourage me. They do not dissuade me. They do not depress me. I am not despondent, walking around in the dark, looking up to heaven and saying, Dear God, what do we do now? Because the gospel of Jesus Christ still has its power. If anything, I am more emboldened to proclaim the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. To say that Jesus loves all people, but all people need Jesus and his salvation. To say as a church, we'll stand on the Bible. We'll stand for traditional marriage, but we'll love everyone who comes into our doors. And we'll do our best to lead them to faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Because the only hope for our nation is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's it. We are hopeless without it. And we have been guilty as Christians of considering ourselves a voting block and thinking that our influence is mainly political when in fact God intends it mostly to be spiritual. And if we would pray as much as we campaign, who knows what God would do in our land. We need to pray for our governing authorities. Number two, we should pursue love as the greatest quality. We should pursue love as the greatest quality. God gives us the standard. It's simple. We are to love, we are to pray for, and respect our governing authorities. The government that God has established that we live under, we are to obey them in so much as it doesn't contradict the word of God, then what? How can I do that? Let's ask that question because if I'm a believer in Jesus Christ and I'm supposed to pray for the governing authorities in my life, the question is how? Because consistently we see decisions and we see actions and we see laws and we see court rulings that contradict our Christian values and principles. So how are we to love them when we don't agree with them? Paul says here we ought to pursue and maintain love as the greatest quality. He says in 1 Corinthians 13 that love is the greatest quality. Now abide faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. Paul says we ought to love one another. That's what he says right there in verse 8. Owe no one anything except to love one another, for he who loves another has fulfilled the law. And then he begins to list all of these laws. And he echoes the words of Jesus Christ when Jesus says, Hey, the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. So how can we obey them? When we don't agree with them. How can we follow the laws of our land. When we disagree with some of the decisions they make. The only way to do it. Is out of love. Think about it like this. God established five authorities in our lives. The Bible says the government is the authority in the nation. The Bible says the father is the authority in the home. The parent is the authority over the child. 
The boss is the authority at work. The pastor is an authority within the church. The Bible lists all of these authorities, and then it gives us a way to respond to those authorities. So, pastor, how can I love my boss when I disagree with her, when I disagree with him? How can I respect them and follow them when the working situation is less than comfortable? How can I respect the authority that God's placed in my life at work when I don't like my situation? Paul gives us the answer. The only way is by supernatural love. That's it. Love covers a multitude of sins. Pastor, you don't understand. My marriage is so difficult. It's so It's so damaging to me emotionally. I don't know if I'm going to make it through. How can I love my spouse when we're at odds with one another? Have you ever considered the thought that God's got you in that marriage, not just to keep you happy, but to make you holy? And he wants you to grow in that relationship, to be more like him. And he wants to show you how he loves you, even when you're not very lovable. Pastor, you don't understand My mom or dad, they don't know Jesus and they don't even like me coming to church. How am I supposed to live in a home where I want to come to church and I want to worship God and my mom and dad, they don't want me here. They don't like the fact that I come to church. How am I supposed to do that? There's only one answer. It's love. That's it. Show the love of Christ. Walk as a changed individual. God has placed this supernatural love in your heart. And so, let me go ahead and tell you as a pastor. As a pastor, God has given me the responsibility and the privilege to lead this church. And it's a privilege that I don't take lightly. And let me, let me tell you my philosophy. If there's a guy who stands in the pulpit and has to remind the church every week, I'm the pastor, I'm the pastor, I'm the pastor, he's really not that much of a pastor so that's not what I'm doing this morning. But the pastor is given responsibility to shepherd the flock of God. And that's a responsibility I don't take lightly. And let me just go ahead and lay it out here for you. As your pastor, I'm not perfect. I see the shock on all of your faces right now. I'm not perfect and I never will be. I'm not going to make every decision that's the right decision. I'm not going to take every turn that it's exactly right all the time. I'm going to stumble over words when I preach and I may offend you or hurt you from time to time and I may make some decisions that you don't like or you don't appreciate and that's okay. But I want you to know this. I might not be perfect, but I love you. Pastoring this church is a great Stewardship. A blessed responsibility. And I realize that love covers a multitude of sins. So if I go in a direction and you say, what in the world is he thinking? He's way off in left field. I hope you follow it up with this. But I know he loves us. I'm not sure I appreciate this decision or I don't know if this is the direction that we ought to go, but I'll tell you this. I know he loves us. You would be amazed 
as you experience that difficult situation at work, as you walk through a difficult marriage, maybe a difficult home life, how the supernatural love of God begins to do a great and miraculous work. And so if you have a problem with the authority that God has placed in your life, maybe the first place to start is saying, God, don't change that authority. Change my attitude. Maybe God will change that authority down the road. But it first needs to begin with your attitude. We ought to pray for our God-given authority. We ought to pursue love as the greatest quality. And we ought to preserve our good testimony. Preserve your good testimony. So here, Paul tells us what we are to do, then how we are to do it, and now he says why. We are to pray for those in authority over us, even when we disagree with them. How can we do that? Only through love. Why should we do that? Verses 11 through 14 tell us clearly, because when we do that, it preserves and maintains a testimony before the world. Look what the Bible says in verse 11. It says, And do this knowing that the time, that now is high time to awake from your sleep. For now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. He goes on to say, The night is far spent, the day is at hand, and we ought to walk this way as in the day. That's what verse 13 says. We ought to live for Christ and follow him and walk this way. The phrase, as in the day. What's he talking about? He's talking about the day of the Lord. He's talking about when Christ returns. We ought to walk now the same way we would walk when Jesus comes. What's he talking about? He's talking about maintaining a good witness and testimony. So when I live in a land and I can't, dis- I can't agree with all the decisions that are made, what can I do? I can disagree without being disagreeable. I can pray. I can stand for truth. I can hope that the Lord Jesus Christ moves in our nation. When you're on that job and... It's a less than ideal situation. What can you do? You love and you do what's right and you honor Christ and you maintain a good testimony. Who knows that God has you there so you can lead that boss to the Lord. Why should we respect our God-given authority? Why should we exhibit love? Why as Christians in our society should we go out of our way to love those whom we disagree with? Because it shows us this glorious truth that even while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Even while we were at enmity with God, we were on the other side. He reached across the aisle. He reached across that great chasm of sin and rescued us and redeemed us, forgave us and brought us to himself. This world is getting darker by the minute. But God has placed his light, the gospel of Jesus Christ, within each and every believer. And we must do everything we can to take the gospel to an ever-darkening world. Stephanie asks me this question 
on a regular basis. This week was no exception. Why are we bringing another child into this world? You know her motivation for asking. It's not the same world I grew up in. It's not the same United States of America that you grew up in. And we've got four and any minute now five that we're supposed to raise in this context. It is a daunting task. But my answer to her remains basically the same. First of all, we need to trust God because he knows what he's doing. He will not abandon us. He will not leave us. And while this world gets darker and darker by the minute, I want to raise my boys and girls to be a light in the darkness. I want them to make a difference for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if we as followers of Christ just pull the shades and lock the doors, we lose our effectiveness in this world. We need to love We need to live and walk for Christ. Could it be that little child you're raising right now is the one who will one day turn this nation back to Christ? Could could it be that boys and girls right here at Second Baptist Church one day will be in the legislature or the Congress or on the Supreme Court making a difference for the cause of Christ? So I'll tell you why. I'll tell you why we're bringing another child into this sin-cursed, fallen world. Because I want to raise my kids to make a difference for Christ. To be a light in the darkness. Have you ever thought that God has placed us right where we are on purpose? Not on accident. At this moment in time, at this juncture in history. And he is seeing what man, what woman will stand for such a time as this. We pray that God has blessed you as you have listened to this message. If you would like more information about Second Baptist Church, contact us at area code 478-923-7101. You can find us on the web at www.sbcwr.org. Our address is Second Baptist Church, 2504 Moody Road, Warner Robins, Georgia, 31088. Thank you, and may God richly bless you.